Hi everyone, welcome to Rich Queer Aunties, it's your host Christabel. And for the first time on the podcast, we have a guest, and it's none other than my esteemed friend, Dan. Hi. And we're going to let Dan tell us who they are, what they do. Yeah, I am, I am multidimensional being, first and foremost. So as I shapeshift as Dan, I am an organizer. I am a spiritualist, a sorcerer. I am a facilitator, ceremonialist. And as I shapeshift as King Boo, my art practice, I am a, um, I'm a visual artist, uh, abstract visual artist. I'm a DJ, a musician, mm. event producer, portal opener, portal popper. I like to use sound as a tool for healing and for celebrating and for um, bringing people into their bodies or into feelings that, you know, otherwise they may not have capacity to access. Mm -hmm. So I support people generally in their journey in life through these tools, these avenues, these portals. Wow. That last part, like everything that you are and everything that you do is like all inspiring baseline. But I must say that my favorite ways of experiencing you is the way you use sound and music mm. to evoke emotions and help embodiment Hmm. in ways that I've never experienced before. And so that actually goes into like how we met. Hmm. Um, we met, you were DJing an event, right? Whoa, I first saw you <laughs> at a party. Okay. We sat exactly, we were in a pool exactly across from each other. Like you literally walked to where I was sitting across <laughs> the pool and you created a station and <laughs> because you create... Oh stations as well the pool party the pool party but we didn't meet there that was the first time but our our energies met there yeah and then we met again um it wasn't an event it was actually at mushin yeah at mushin yeah. um i think you i, I, I just had i just came did you, did you mm -mm. dj that night you didn't dj i just came okay to hang yeah out and you were like is it safe over here i can come <laughs> Yes, <laughs> literally. <laughs> and I think that was like, I don't know, we just kikied. Yeah. And then we met again at that um, event on the rooftop yeah. with all the queers, the gala. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that from there, that was it. We made the connections that we were J-dubs. Yeah. And it was over. It was over. <laughs> we're just like, shut up. So yeah, that's a great segue into what we're going to be talking about today. Mm-hmm. We were both raised Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> we're both no longer Jehovah's Witnesses. Hallelujah. <sighs> and the conversation is like, how did we get from point A to point B? Yeah. Because it's not straightforward, is it? So I'm interested. I don't meet a lot of ex-J-dubs. The other person in my life currently who is an ex-J-dub is my ex who we met mm -hmm. because we were part of the same congregation and we were part of the same like pioneer field service group. Hmm. Uh, for those who don't know that, pioneers are full-time ministers and they devote a certain number of hours a month to go house-to-house -house preaching. So that's how me and my ex met preaching. 
preaching to people about how being gay is a sin. So mm-hmm. how was it for you? Tell me about your upbringing as a Jehovah's Witness. What did that look like for you? Tight. It was really tight. So not only were both my parents Jehovah's Witnesses, I was the only child. And both of my parents are also Caribbean. So there's just like a Caribbean mentality that exists where things can be pretty strict generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's this extra layer of religious indoctrination. And then all eyes on me created this really intense life at a very young age, you yeah. know. There was no space for any type of individual development, expression. (sighs) Yeah, there was just no time because all of my time was spent either preparing for the end of the world, (laughs) you know, like, or teaching people that the end is coming Mm -hmm. and this is how you'll survive. Or fucking like, oh, can I? Yeah. Okay, cute. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Can you imagine Ah. me having a podcast where you can't curse? The fuck? (laughs) (laughs) We free here. Okay. But then, like, you know, always having those weekly meetings, like, every Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday, they weren't mine. Like, nothing was mine. So, I experienced growing up in religious, like, thick religious gumbo, you know? (laughs) Like, there's no way out. This is it. I didn't have a lot of friends because, you know, they were worldly. You can't be friends with people who aren't Jehovah's Witnesses because they'll taint your mind, you know? Bad associations, spoils useful, useful habits. habits. Oh my god, I should get that on a t-shirt. <laughs> that was it. That was the mantra. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. That was it. It's just a lot of it was a lot of inner sadness. Like just imagine what it feels like to have your spirit crushed, you know, because you can't be your own person. So I was constantly suppressing curiosity, desire, questions about everything, the world, myself, how people interact, how you connect, love, just everything. No development in that. Were you aware that this was happening? Were you aware that your curiosity was being suppressed, Mm -hmm. that your individuality was not being expressed? Yeah. How did that awareness look like for you? Depression or Mm. quote unquote depression, right? Like to know that there's more of you and then to have to actively suppress it yeah it it just feels like a fight i can't win Mm -hmm. so i'm gonna just give up and i'm just gonna become a a shell of myself and the only way i can actually become a shell of myself is if i continuously suppress so it's this like crazy cycle that happens and so i've spent most of my childhood and teenage years and young adulthood depressed Mm -hmm. you know and i couldn't find my way out of the darkness like it took seven years of consistent purging detoxing and being clear about the end goal which was like releasing this stuff that I picked up along the way that's the only way that I was able to get this out the reason why I ask that is my story is similar but very different in very notable ways to me so I too was raised by an African Jehovah's Witness parent my dad and my mom were both Jehovah's Witnesses at some point my dad's mom and dad were also Jehovah's Witnesses but my dad was the more rebellious one even though when he married my mom he was a Jehovah's Witness eventually like he got disfellowshipped because he was drinking a lot he was violent towards my mom so then my mom left and when she left she clung to 
to the truth, i.e. being a Jehovah's Witness. Yeah. It was her whole identity she had coming to being a Jehovah's Witness through her older brother when she lived with him during her teenage years, like early adulthood. So she found family in the congregation. She had a really hard upbringing. So when she found that love and that community within the congregation, she said, I am never letting go of this. So that's kind of the mindset with which she divorced my dad and we moved to Ghana from Nigeria. That's how she raised my brother and I. Very much this thing saved my life. This thing gave my life purpose and I will force feed it to you whether you like it or not. It is, in fact, my biblical and godly obligation to do this. If I'm going to go out on these streets preaching to people to try to get them to come serve Jehovah, what you think? I'm not going to do that at home. Y'all out of your mind. So it was very strict in that way. You know, it feels really resemblance. But I don't think I came into an awareness of the ways that I was lacking Hmm. until when I was much older. I certainly acted out a lot. I was beat a lot. Conforming was difficult for me, but I couldn't name it. It also could be because I grew up in Africa. So like there's just not a lot of naming of things in a collectivistic society. It's just what it is. So in that way, it feels really different. You know, so I was rebellious, but I would go to meetings. You didn't have to tell me to prepare for field service, to not celebrate birthday. I was like at school, Mm-mm, y'all are pagan. Oh yeah. my God. So that's why I was really interested to have this conversation because sometimes it feels like it's the same experiences but it's not um mm-mm. Mm-mm. Yeah. <laughs> that was my mom you and my mom would be best friends would we though oh my gosh because knowing everything i know about subconscious conditioning the ways i rebelled were so violent so i would talk the talk but like i was engaged to a 36 year old man when i was 16 wow okay i had two abortions by the time i was 16 and 17 mm-hmm so it's like it came out it came out it's weird absolutely I didn't have a realization I couldn't name depression Mm. I just could name like I was seeking love Mm. in all the places Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) wrong right in between I was seeking love and I would gravitate towards that and in high school and in college like you said I didn't have friends the friends I had in the congregation you're worried because they might go tattle on you you go tell the elders I had them once (laughs) so um so yeah thanks for sharing that i love that you had a recognition a very clear one yeah very clear but i think that a distinction is that you had a bigger family around Mm. you Mm -hmm. um i had a bigger family around me until i was nine and then we moved from brooklyn to jersey Mm. and i think something switched there Mm -hmm. i was always rebellious like my spirit is naturally rebellious Mm -hmm. and i never wanted to study i always thought it was boring i always thought that i couldn't make it make sense like i hear that these are words that these people i don't know who these people are also like i'm like (laughs) who's the man that wrote this book that was me as a kid I'm looking up the author's names, like, why is everybody white? You know, like, everything, I questioned everything. Mm. But then at the same time, there was, like, this spirit being crushed, too. So, but I think that 
my family size had to do with it also. Like the fact that I didn't have any distractions. In Brooklyn, I grew up in an apartment building where like my aunts were on the ninth floor. They were on the second floor. Mm. I could go upstairs, downstairs. Our kingdom hall was across the street. We helped build that kingdom hall. <laughs> Bethel was like down the road, you know. So I was more insular mm. in the community. And then when we moved to Jersey, I had some time and space. Yeah. And it was just me. And that's where the questioning started getting bigger and more robust. Yeah. And I didn't have answers. And everybody just kept telling me to have faith. And that wasn't good enough for me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. How old were you when you got baptized? 17. Because I didn't want to do it. Okay. I didn't want to do it. I only did it because my dad was trying to become an elder. Yeah. So I was getting pressured to get baptized. So I just did it because it was the next thing to do. Right? Getting baptized is equal to that question like when are you gonna have a baby or when are you gonna get married yeah. mm-hmm. it's like when are you gonna get baptized nobody else asked about anything else but that until you're baptized yeah uh, it was just a cool thing to do a little um, late bloomer in that way though i got baptized at 13 i started having sex at 13 <laughs> okay <laughs> other way around <laughs> you baptized that pussy hey. at 13 <laughs> Not in the blood of Jesus. But, um, <laughs> oh, gosh, I'm dead. <laughs> so how did you navigate separating yourself from being a Jehovah's Witness? Like, was it a back and forth? How did oh, that sure. work for you? It was a back and forth my whole life, even having sex at 13. Mm-hmm. Everything I did, there was guilt attached to it. So I would go, I would rebel, do my thing, and then I would feel so guilty, and then I would, like, pioneer the next month. <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> I would just go to extremes on both ends. Yeah. That was my teenage years. It was just, like, toggling between trying to get some sort of myself out or find some sort of myself. Because school was, like, the place that became the club, mm. right? School became social hour. Mm-hmm. That's why I didn't really excel at school because when I got to school, I was just ready to communicate with people. Oh my God, we can hang out, we can play, we can talk about things that aren't the Bible. Yeah. Oh my God. Time for algebra. What do you talk about outside of the Bible? There's things to talk about, like music. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Music and books. Those are my things. Yeah. It was a ten-year journey until I actually left. Left. From like what age? I'd say 13. Okay. Something just switched. It was just like a no fucks given. Yeah. I don't know what's on the other side of this, but I'm going to find out. So I guess in some respects that curiosity didn't die, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It just wasn't leading the charge, but it was subtly there stirring the pot. I'm just sipping tea like, ooh, what's she going to do? <laughs> take a little bit of this. What's she gonna do with it? Yeah, thirteen to my early twenties, it was just like, yeah, the birth of the internet really helped my queerness be birthed. I will say. Um, And that was also a thing that gave me confidence because I was such a researcher and I had confidence that I could find my way if I didn't have anyone. Yeah. That was the thing that really allowed me to let go at the very end when I had a decision to make. I was like, am I going to keep suppressing myself? Am I going to live my life suppressed? compressed parts of me because I saw all of the black women around me suppressed and Mm -hmm. 
parts of themselves. And I loved those shiny parts of themselves that they like would express. Yeah. But most of the women in the congregations that I was adjacent to or went to, they weren't showing up. Like I could see because I'm a spiritualist, I've always been a spiritualist. I've yeah. always been a seer. I've always known certain things that I couldn't explain. Mm-hmm. So I think that as a kid, I was seeing that suppression happen and it just wasn't attractive to me. I didn't want to grow up to be like that. Yeah. And I didn't necessarily have an example of who I wanted to grow up to be like, but at least in my fantasies and in my dreamland, that was more exciting than what I was seeing. So that curiosity yeah. is what like kept me, I wouldn't even say forging away because I didn't forge my way out of this. Mm-hmm. I just kept making choices that at the time centered me, even though I didn't have that language, yeah. you know? Give me an example of a choice that you would make. So getting my tattoos. Okay, okay. Like that was a big deal. Yeah. That was like a, a rebellious, like I'm ripping off the bandaid and I'm getting five tattoos in my first sitting. I'm still baptized at this point. I've moved out of my parents' house and I bought a condo in Jersey City. And you I was bought like, a condo? Yeah. I was, you look, I'm a Capricorn. Her. I be doing... <laughs> The ting, okay? How old are we talking? I was 22. I was 22. But this is what I'm saying. Like, I I didn't have fear that I couldn't do it because I would just do it. I would just be like, well, this is what I need to survive. I'm going to do whatever it takes to survive. So I think at that point, you know, I was living my best New York City life. I had my condo. I was working in the city at like the Food Network or something and getting my suits. (laughs) I was figuring it out for myself, you know, and that shit is scary. But the conviction that there's another side to this story was all that I needed. I just needed that, like, there's a possibility that things can be different. Yeah. And that is what, like, allowed me to get those five tattoos, knowing that I was going to see my parents. Because even though I bought my condo in Jersey City, my parents were close enough to where I would wash my clothes at their house on the weekend. (laughs) 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 And that was my way of, like, having Sunday dinner with them and stuff like that. Because my parents and I were best friends. So I knew I was going to see my family. And I knew it was going to stir the pot. But I also knew that I don't depend on y'all for anything. Yeah. So... At this point, any decision that I make, we have to have a conversation about it. You can't punish me or anything. So I started moving in like the subtleties. Yeah. Like, what's going to happen if, uh-huh. you know? Were you still going that to meetings way, at this point? No, I had stopped going to meetings. And what stopped that was literally, there was this couple in the Jersey City congregation that I admired. I thought that their light was shining. And at the same time, their light was never shining equally, right? She mm-hmm. always still had to suppress herself and it was the most unattractive thing to me mm-hmm. and there was something about witnessing their love like the depth of their love the depth of their power their essence but then still seeing her muted I was like I don't want to be inside of anything that does this to women I saw it happen to my mom you know just like this brilliant being who has made choices mm-hmm. that keep her partner in a place of I don't know elevate like, elevate yeah, Innovation. Yeah. yeah. Their feelings, their needs, yeah. their everything. I just see the suppression of women in these contexts. And at that age, I just knew that basic thing was not okay for me. Yeah. And I didn't want to be involved. And I made my decision to stop going altogether based on that experience in my body. And I remember the day I made that decision because it was scary. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Right? Because now I'm going to have to explain because moms is going to ask, like, you've been to your meetings and mm-hmm. da, 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 da. And I'm going to say the truth. Yeah. And then I'm going to see what happens from there. Mm-hmm. And I think it was that, like, as I'm talking about it now, I'm realizing that I was ripping the Band-Aid off slowly in my own way. Slowly but purposely. Yeah. It's like, okay, I'm going to do this little thing and see what's going to happen. Oh, that wasn't so bad. Okay. Oh, that was really scary. That, oof, I need some time before I rip off the next, you yeah. know? What did they do when they saw the tattoos? How did that? My happen? dad was like, what's that? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> you see, like, <laughs> is that the conversation that you want to have? <laughs> okay, because I did it real slick, right? Because so sometimes I would spend the night at their house. Um, so I think it was like a Saturday to Sunday. I'd gone to wash clothes and I took a shower and I was walking to my room and I just had my towel. So when I did those five tattoos, they were like from my ear, shoulder, and then down my back. So it was obvious he was yeah. going to see me walking out. And I just, you know, I like subtle things. Yeah. It don't have to be like, hey, yeah. like it's already going to be a shock to your system. Uh-huh. Let me subtly roll it out. Um, And we never had an actual conversation about it. He, like, tried to passively, like, bring it up into other talking suits. Because my dad was the lecturer. Yeah. So, and that's another part, too. Not only was my identity suppressed, my voice was suppressed. I didn't have access to this right now. Like, what we're doing, didn't have access to it for years. This is a new thing. My father would always talk at me. So I just learned to space out when people were talking. Mm. And I learned to not say anything. So he ended up just like passively bringing it up and like, oh, you're piercing your body and you're tatting your body now. And like, where is Jehovah? You know, like to shame you kind of conversations. Mm -hmm. But at that point, I was fortifying myself by making my own choices, by having my own things. And then at this point, I was fucking women. So also, I'm being turned out at the same time. Okay. I am dead. I can't lay in your bed, but I can lay in that pussy. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. The world could crumble right now. Like... Yeah. So there were these like comforts that showed up as I was releasing myself from the only thing that I knew, you know, and those comforts were comforting. Oh my goodness. I love, Mm. oh gosh, I love hearing this because our differences shine their light and it makes me realize there's no one approach Mm. to get in there. Much like you would just like keep quiet, be suppressed, not be subtle with it. I was the exact opposite. (laughs) I will come looking for a fight. I will be squared up. I remember I went to the UK when I was 18 and I didn't get tattoos, but I got piercings. I got my nose pierced i got my tongue pierced i went home to ghana after however long i was in the uk for i will say that when i was going from university to go visit my mom at home i took out the nose piercing but i forgot to take out the tongue piercing so when she saw the tongue piercing she threw the remote at me and started crying about how jehovah has deserted her what has she done wrong for me to turn out the way i did because i got a tongue piercing so that was the most subtle like thing i 
I did mm. by taking that piercing out. After that, though, it was on and popping. Mm. We didn't have tattoo studios in Ghana. Didn't have access to even piercing. You know, it was only when I went to the UK. So the next time I went back to the UK, I got more things pierced. Mm. And when I came home, I was engaged to this dude. This is 16? 18. Oh, I was engaged to him before that. So then when I came home, my boyfriend at the time had moved to the US. And so I was like, I'm going to the US. I'm leaving you. I'm leaving this horrible existence. So I always had a mouth on me. Mm. I would say the thing. I would fight. Um, I would fight in her face, but behind closed doors, I would cry. I would be really sad that I couldn't talk to my mom about what was going on with me. I couldn't talk to her about the abortions. I couldn't talk to her about anything. So when I got it in my mind, though, that I was leaving, that was that. I remember the day I left, it had rained and I had this suitcase. My dad had given me my prized possession and she was like berating me and insulting me. And I was dragging my suitcase through the mud, like quite literally. I kept that suitcase for like 10 years, even after I came to the US with the mud still on it. Cause I would always be like, this was the day I left. This was the day I left towards my freedom. And I did it despite her saying, you will not amount to anything if you leave here, you know? So yeah, there are differences, there are similarities, but Mm -hmm. one thing for sure is that, especially being queer, right? Like when that thing in you comes to collect. Because it comes to collect. (laughs) You either answer or you're miserable. Or you die. In the word. Oh, you you die. die You die inside. That's it. That was the only choice. And whichever way, even if it's a back and forth and a, like, I'm not sure about it. I do this and I do that. Because even when I came to the U.S. and I broke up with that boyfriend, I still wasn't fucking women. I put an ad out on Craigslist looking for a girl. I was like, listen, I was living in Chicago at the time. I know how to do this. I think I like women. But, you know, I'm not really trying to do anything sexual. So if you just want to connect and talk... I still have that email from Craigslist in my inbox. I look at it often. It should be on the wall, yes. Yeah. And what do you know? The person who replied to the ad was a Catholic queer woman who was also struggling with her sexuality and religious guilt. So I know this conversation is specific to Jehovah's Witness, but we see it happen in, I mean, the cult of Christianity in Mm -hmm. general, Mm -hmm. especially if you're queer. Like the guilt is crushing or can be crushing because at least if you're straight, and sinful you can still find someone to love and have a life with right if you're queer you're doomed to be on your own yeah have them tell it yeah it's okay if you're gay as long as you don't do homosexual acts Mm. i.e have a partner live with a partner be happy try to find a measure of warmth and comfort with someone or with someone's Mm -hmm. and so that becomes just like there's no way out for me i was just like oh this is fuck i really do have to leave and that's kind of what started that journey for me yeah i was outed so i didn't think i was gonna come out Mm. I didn't know how that part was going to happen. But I will say that I'm grateful that it happened because now I'm grateful that it happened. Yeah. Because it did just give me that final nudge. Yeah. To like stand stand up for myself. Yeah. You know, yeah. and say, yes, 
this is me. This is a fucked up way that this has happened. But yes, I'm gay. I like women. And let's talk about it. Did they want to talk about it? Um, Not like in a conversation way. <laughs> in a you're terrible person kind of way? <laughs> you have deserted Jehovah and us. and Yeah. We all have these feelings yeah. and we suppress them. That's what like uh, I was told. So, oh. yeah. Which I already knew. I already knew that. But like, yeah. I have this theory that, you know how you're hard pressed to find anyone in our parents' generation who are gay or queer or openly or covertly or whatever? I'm like, y'all are gay as fuck. Like, all of y'all. Come on. This is why this is so triggering mm-hmm. to you. Yeah. This is why you rather chew your arm off than accept that your offspring exercising free will mm-hmm. is actually <laughs> an extension of you. <laughs> and I'm exercising it because you didn't exercise it. And you know, can we celebrate that? No, because they can't celebrate that part of themselves. So, and that's a part of the healing, right? Just like knowing that Mm -hmm. there's a stuckness that unfortunately came with that generation. It was an energy that people could attach to or they couldn't because some people didn't, right? Yeah. And those are the revolutionaries of that generation. Yes, yes. And some attached to that low vibration of fear. Yeah. And we're at choice every day in that respect. I could have chosen fear in that moment. And it was like I saw both paths clearly. I saw what the fear path was going to lead to. And I saw what the freedom of saying yes in this moment was going to lead to. I couldn't see the details, but I knew that it felt really good. It didn't feel like that path. And so I went with the yes. I went with the curiosity of what was on the other side of everyone knowing everything and not living two lives. Because that's what I ended up living, two lives. Yeah, I want to go back to what you said about being at the juncture where you need to make a decision, choose fear or choose freedom. Is it really a choice? I say this because I thought about it last night when I was thinking about talking to you today. If you were raised, say my mom was raised up, had a lot of trauma, had a lot of pain and came into this loving congregation because they can be that oh for sure they are that you know my mom is love yeah so you come into this congregation that you find peace for the first time right you find shelter from the storms as it were you believe everything that you're being taught like it's not just my mom who believed the bible verbatim there are people of our generation of our age who are also like they believe this stuff 100 percent. and so part of that belief is like proselytizing preaching getting people to come into the love of jehovah so that they can live forever in everlasting life so they can see their dead loved ones again and they want that so bad for their children They want their children in paradise with them. So that's the place from which they are doing all these things, all these denial of your personhood, all these like they're coming from this place of love Mm -hmm. as they feel it. Mm -hmm. So then where is the choice? Like, how can they choose different? How can they choose essentially not teaching their kids how to gain everlasting life? Because they believe it. Because they believe it. I think that. It's tricky, right? Because you understand how we got here. (laughs) I I totally get it. Mm -hmm. 
the the tricky part for me is that they believe there's only one way. Uh-huh. Right? There's only one way to serve God and it's this way. Yeah. And any other way is wrong. And from that place, it's like, that's judgment. Like, that's the first thing that the Bible is saying. But they have Bible prophecies to back them up. They have these explanations. Like, how do we know that Jehovah's Witnesses is the truth? There are these set of quote-unquote evidences that convince them that they're the truth. Right. I'm asking this question purely like, I know what my thoughts about it is. Just like exploratory angle. If you can point out these scriptures, these prophecies, these things that have been fulfilled, you literally are thinking that you're critically thinking, that you're analyzing. You're not just falling for the okie doke. You're like, oh no, I'm not being brainwashed. You know, like that's how I experienced my mom. She was a high school chemistry teacher. She taught us to reason. She was big in school. I was in college by the time I was 16 for that reason so I never thought I was being brainwashed I don't think she thinks any part of it doesn't make sense to her from that place how do you break free from that you know for me I can only speak from my experience um Jehovah's Witness rhetoric is all based in logic it's not based in feeling Mm -hmm. because you have to detach yourself in order to do the thing right Mm -hmm. so for me my life was based in feeling like that was the way I escaped Mm -hmm. through following my feeling not my logic not my brain not the things that I was taught because even though we're taught all that stuff there's so much subtle parts of life that we're not taught, that we're ignoring at the same time. Yeah. And in order to go that hard as a Jehovah's Witness, you have to be ignoring so much else to exist. Yeah. And that stuff that I was ignoring was starting to be loud. The signs were loud. I couldn't miss them. Mm-hmm. Even if I tried to ignore it, there was no ignoring them. Yeah. And because those signs were loud, the code, the coded language of spirit overpowered any logical thinking, any writing, any biblical grimoire prophecy, mm-hmm. you know, like it became small magic in this big magical world. Yeah. And that was the turning point for me. I love like, that. You see, I love that so much because we never know who is going to listen to this and how it's going to touch them. That's it. Lean a little out of the logic and being in the head and lean into the feelings part of things. Like just don't be so scared to feel and just see what those feelings are Mm -hmm. telling you. And it's really challenging. Yeah. Because the head is really loud. Yeah. Look, the head's on top, right? The heart's under the head. So it's easier to program this and it's easier to listen to this by default. Yeah. It is more intentional to listen to the quieter parts of anything, of nature, of yourself. It's a choice. And that's why I was saying it. I got to that point where it was a choice. I waited. I didn't make a reactionary choice because reactionary is out of fear. When you just do something by default mechanic, Mm -hmm. that's fear. To stop, get present in your body, take a breath, and then make a choice, that comes from the feeling, Mm -hmm. from the intuition, from the knowing. Thank you. And that's what Mm -hmm. we've been disconnected from purposefully so that we could be programmed with 
in our in our minds. And another thing that I recognize is common between both of us, like that feeling of safety when you've gotten out of their grasp. You know, like if you don't do this, we won't feed you. That also helps make it easier to listen when you're no longer dependent on them for your very living. Yeah, and. There are many ways to not be dependent on them. And them means whoever your structure is around you, your foundational structure is, which is really challenging conversation to have because we're also, I mean, family, they're our first gods, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is our village and it's all we know. It's where we feel safe and what we trust. But what happens when that foundation begins to harm you. Can you identify that and call it out? And when you can, you begin to make your own choices in that. Okay, so I'm showing up like this. My family's showing up like this. Who am I going to be right now? And you just keep checking in with yourself. And there may be a point where you'll have to distance yourself. And that can be very challenging. For me, my, my family distanced themselves from me. Mm. So not only did I have to deal with the distance, I had to deal with the abandonment also. Yeah. And I really encourage people to pour into themselves, pour into their healing work around religious trauma, because it would come up for me in the most subtle ways. It showed up a lot in my relationships, my intimate relationships. Yeah. And how there was like this... We got to do this or we're going to die. Energy all the time. <laughs> like this urgency. Do you live Oh, yeah. I was going to say, do you, did you live in my life then? Because, yeah, for sure. I think that's just like the residue that comes with being a Oof. J-Dub. Because we're programmed to constantly tell people that, like, we have the truth. You're going to die. Yeah. Right? And so then everything became this. You, you're going to eat meat. You're going to die. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm so grateful for my past lovers. Shout out to (laughs) y'all. Shout out to y'all for the containers y'all created. For me to show up all the ways I needed to show up so that I could heal. Yeah, a lot of my healing happened in intimate relationships, for sure. It's that mirror. You're looking at yourself. And you just realize that, oh, the whole world did not live like Mm. (laughs) My therapist, I remember saying, she's like, Tomorrow is probably going to come. Mm-hmm. He's like, statistically, you're probably going to live. I was That's like, mm, but do you know though? Right. <laughs> Can you show me where's the data? Where is the data? <laughs> no. It's right here. It's in your blood. Swear to God. No, it took me so long until I could a map from that feeling of urgency surrounding everything yeah yeah it was such a scary place because it felt real it felt like we have to talk about this Mm -hmm. right now otherwise we are all not going to make it (laughs) it's wow it's our nervous system like this shit affects our nervous system oh (laughs) it it kept me so tight so constricted literally physically though let me give you an example There's so many things that I thought were just normal. (laughs) I had a really hard ass. I had a hard ass. Like Like my muscle. Like I didn't know that that was because I was just walking around tense all the time. Yeah. Like most of my 20s, I was just walking around like... 
And you weren't even doing glute Prepare- exercises. No. But I was just like prepared for battle all the time. Like the trauma of always being ready to go and ready to like That's my neck and shoulder somebody. for sure. Yeah, but that showed up in my ass. Yeah. And it wasn't until one of my partners were like, I don't think this is supposed to be like that. And literally literally there was like like within like the next six months this body worker showed up and she specifically worked with myofascial release and she also was a spiritualist and she was like this is all your daddy energy this is all locked in your ass and she started weekly working that shit out not gotta stop that (laughs) it jiggles (laughs) <laughs> oh gosh this is another conversation for another day about how the body holds trauma because i'm deep in that work right now mm. because surprisingly or unsurprisingly my approach to healing was still just all head based mm. you know whatever to each their own right and so i feel like i have spaciousness now because i was so disconnected from my body and my feelings that perhaps i needed to go the route that i went which Mm. is head first understanding how trauma works understanding how childhood abuse affects us later on understanding religious trauma just from a purely analytical like okay i understand it i can let it go i can forgive my mom i can work through this work through that and now because so many people are showing up in my life people like you like kachi who are so in their body and (laughs) feel everything my shoulders are up to my neck constantly so i'm doing this exercise for the last month where i wake up i sit on the toilet and i purposefully like release my shoulder down and it literally goes a mile it drops it's this drop and so i've been doing it with every time i can remember so now i can just remember more often and every single time that i feel like this is better now every single time i call it to mind i wouldn't be stressed about anything but i would just remember oh drop your shoulder to see yeah. and i would drop it and it would drop a mile again every single it's getting maybe a tad tad better so like i'm doing all these different things i'm working like with spirituality in a different way and just like trying to figure out like understand my body see where these things are stored but i'm telling you it's most notable in the morning you would think i just woke up from bed i was rested no it's like an escalator drops Mm. (laughs) it's how it feels from my shoulder so i absolutely relate to something being that hard i also Um, had that too i had to work with a chiropractor because it was that intense my head of course i'm seeing an orthopedic doctor first okay okay. can't now Do what you gotta do. Do what you gotta do. But and and Kachi would be like, chiropractors are really good. You know, body healer. I was like, mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm gonna go to the uh orthopedic <laughs> doctor. I'm gonna get a CT. I'm gonna get an X-ray. I just want to see structurally if there's anything there. If there's that, I'm open. I'm gonna do. Do you? I'm gonna do sports therapy. But that conversation about how trauma lives in the body is it's a real thing. It's, it's wild. It's a part of the process of detoxing that I was telling you. It took seven yeah. years. Because once you unlock that shoulder part, then you unlock something else. Ooh. And then 
So just get ready. The way living makes sense to me is to heal and become love even more and more. Otherwise, the whole thing is absurd to me. Right. <laughs> so, so I'm here for that. Yeah. I'm here for that lifelong journey. Mm. Um, it excites me, you know. So speaking of the withdrawal of familial support, when you choose to become you, mm-hmm. <laughs> that happens. Um, how did you navigate that? What did that look like? for you honestly i'm gonna have to say that the stars and cosmology that i was born within guides my life because i don't know if i wouldn't have been like such a stubborn driven sign as capricorn i don't know i can't say that everybody could have their sanity still with Mm. all the things that i had to like go through from being indoctrinated and then post being indoctrinated Mm. i think that there was a lot of intention put into the code of my astrology Mm -hmm. and so i think that being a capricorn in itself the fact that despite all odds i'm gonna keep going i'm gonna keep climbing for something that's my intrinsic nature that no matter what door closes I'm like, oh, there's got to be another one. Yeah. So that played out with my family. Initially, I was just like, well, damn, I got space now. Mm-hmm. I got space to sprawl out mm-hmm. and no one's checking for me. Mm-hmm. This is kind of cool. So I would say like it was a, a mixture of a lot of space and like, are they really not going? <laughs> for real, oh. y'all. Wait. Yeah. <laughs> Um, And because also I was in my new life now, there was so much exciting things happening that simultaneously I was able to grieve and party at the same time, you know, party in my new life, but also like spend five days crying if I needed to. The transition was rocky. I did not have anybody. Yeah. Like period. Yeah. So for context... Both of my parents are Jehovah's Witnesses. My mother is Jamaican. My father is Guyanese. My mother's family, I didn't grow up around them. Mm -hmm. I grew up knowing my father's family. They were the ones that lived in the apartment building. They were the houses that I went to all the time. And they were all Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm -hmm. So when our relationship broke, everyone, like there was Mm -hmm. no one. It was tumbleweeds. I wouldn't get a text back if I reached out and nobody was checking for me. So there was beauty in that and there was sadness in that. And I felt the sadness more as time passed. It wasn't like an initial like wait, which then gave me space to create a little, at least so that when I did feel the weight of the sadness, I had a buffer. I had something to land on because I had created something for myself. And what that something looked like was I was outed. At the same time I was outed, I was in transition to buy my second condo. And in that transition, I was going to stay at my parents' house while I moved. And... I was outed. My parents said I couldn't stay with them. And so I was like, fuck it. I'm not going to buy this condo. I'm just going to take the money that I made and survive. Because nobody has my back right now. So I was setting myself up for leaving. I didn't even know it. I didn't even know it. And that's been most of my life. Yeah. And that's why I just trust. I trust my intuition. I trust what's showing up. I do the thing and then I wait. Because 
I saved my own self, you know, like I always had me and I know it's not like that for everybody. And that's what I'm saying. Like whatever code I was programmed with was like for this. We knew this was coming, you know, and after I was outed, after I decided that I was just going to take this money and take care of myself. I just started going on adventures with lovers. Mm -hmm. And like I said, like that softened the blow of the transition. And then I got married. Mm -hmm. And then it was that, you know, like, and so I started creating my own life to live in that supported me because I basically had to find a reason to still be here in the same way that like you tethered to love. I had to figure out my reason and my reason is to experience fun. Because that's not what I had in any part of my life. Like, most of my life has been suppressed. Then after suppression was survival, exploration, and now I'm in fun. Like, and that's what I live for. That's like, if I'm not having fun, that's not, I'm not supposed to be here, you know? No, I get that. You know, you said earlier that your parents were your best friends. So that initial stages, you were just glad for the distance. You had other things going on. You had creative projects. You know, you still had moments where you could grieve within that. As time went on and you began to settle a little bit, how did the grief show up? Did it show up like harder, softer, more intense? Same, like, how did it show up for you? Or currently in your life, how does that grief show up for you? Currently, it is showing up in my interpersonal relationships. Mm -hmm. Because I have space now to look at the details of my life and to to see how my body is reacting in moments and not just, like, rush through those Mm -hmm. moments. I'm present to seeing how there's some healing... Even around like living out, like fully, being fully fucking expressed. Yeah. There is something still there. Like the healing never fucking ends ever. I still have a part of me that is hesitant around sharing myself, sharing my voice. And I say it's subtle because I feel like I'm here, I'm ready, and I'm out here. I perform. Especially like I do all the things. To, I get that. Like, it's so interesting. But when you know your yeah. true potential. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> That's what it is. Like, yeah. if you leave other people to tell you, like, everyone thinks I'm the shit. Right. So, so I, I get, get it. it. Right. And then... Inside, you're like, (laughs) (laughs) but there's more. There's more. Yeah. And there really is. Like, this is the closest I've ever felt to it, I will say. So I know it's coming, and it's just all a part of my work. You know what? I think our late 40s, 50s, 60s is going to be so lit. (laughs) I think, yeah, there's sometimes that, like, a little bit of an impatience to see it all fully realized now. And then you realize, like, I'm in my late 30s. You're in your 30s. Like, we're young. Yeah. We're so young There's still. so much time. There's so much time. You know, time. and we're right on time, on purpose. The healing is healing. Yeah. <laughs> there are a few people in my life who, like, see everything that I am. Mm. And sometimes their eagerness on my behalf can be a little much Mm, mm. because i'm just like i get it 
y'all want everyone to see everything all the time i do too mm-hmm. and it's gonna take as long as it's gonna take each day i'm gonna show up each day i show up in my life and that is enough for me to know that like things will do what it do yeah when it's time for that to happen um so we're we're right on track we are i actually feel no i don't have any fomo Uh i'm not afraid i'm missing out on anything i'm excited i'm like perpetually excited yeah because the more i heal the more i'm present to how amazing my life is like that i am creating yeah ain't nobody do this but me you know and that just excites me for like, like, how am I going to color in the <laughs> next set, set of years? Yeah. You know, it doesn't, it's not going to look anything like our parents' generation, the gen- generations before, with all the tools that we have, with all the healing that we're doing. It's just everything is possible. Yeah. You know? And I believe that wholeheartedly. I've been um, thinking recently, I've been having a lot of conversations with my partner, Wikachi, um, around grief, about how grieving the parts of you that you thought you needed or the parts of you that protected you, mm-hmm. how leaving it squarely, th- leaving those experiences in those timelines enables you to show up today as today instead of constantly like because the lack of grief makes it feel like the past is here I mean that's what happens when we're triggered that's what happens when we show up in ways that we're just like I know this is not true in this moment I know the way I'm reacting to this experience is not about this particular experience but about the past so like just what does it look like to really lean into grief as a way of rebirth and as a way of anchoring yourself in the time you're in being able to experience new relationships for what they are, existing relationships for what they are. And I've just been finding a lot of healing in that. Just like, okay, this this is... And that's part of why I'm doing all the body stuff and the spiritual stuff, and which kind of leads me into my next question. I knew this conversation was going to be long. You're still down? I'm down. Okay, cool. <laughs> It's juicy. (laughs) And I also still want to talk about grief, though. Let's talk about it still, then. Yeah. Yeah. I was reading this concept the other day around depression and how we've named it depression. However, it's just a time that is requiring us to be still, that we tend to fight against. (laughs) And we try to still keep going in our normal lives, but, like, we're being told to be still in this moment. And that, like, push and pull creates the chaos that we call depression. Mm -hmm. And thinking about how when we go into grief, we, like, call it this dark time where we can't see and we feel depressed. And we're always trying to get out of these feelings, Mm -hmm. these heavier feelings. And I'm really interested in exploring and deepening our relationship to grief and to that process and to 
you know, like you said, allowing yourself to go through it, like inviting it in. What what does it look like to invite the grief and to be with the grief, create a place for the grief to be, you know, as if it was a guest? Mm-hmm. What happens if we build our relationship to explore this thing, even though it's an unfamiliar feeling and we may not particularly enjoy what it brings we know we know there are facts that there is an other side to it yeah and if we choose to just suspend ourselves suspend our life in that moment which is a practice that I ended up doing Mm -hmm. I ended up doing this practice because I was always led to face it and I know this is not everyone's story um because spirit energy universe works with us in different ways but Every time I would try to just get on with it, be over it, go through it, um, I would be led to face it. Like, there was no way around. And that became a practice for me where it's like, oh, well, I guess it's lights out right now. I'm just going to be here for however long. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it was grueling. Sometimes it would be weeks. And it didn't really feel good. I wouldn't say it didn't feel good for me, and I'm sure it didn't feel good for people around me, right? Because grieving is a communal practice. (laughs) But I say that to say that it's worth it because of who you become in the process Mm -hmm. of that, right? And then what happens after. There's something all chemical that happens. There's a There is a transmutation that happens when you allow that process to unfurl. You become different. Your environment becomes different. And so I just, I really stress the importance of the process of grief and the process of being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Like normalize being uncomfortable and not... When I say things, they're not cookie-cutter statements also. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In this There's context, yes, yeah. in this context yeah. of grieving and doing things that seem harder, normalize being uncomfortable because you know there is another side to it. Yeah. Commit to that process. Yeah. It's worth it. Yeah. Thank you. I 100% agree with you. Um, I think many things are named depression in our culture as a way of diagnosis, but very few things are depression. I'm talking clinical depression where it doesn't just, it's not just days long. It can stretch on for years and that feeling of hopelessness. And I, I think it is important to delineate what situational sadness and grief looks like and being able to sit with those in those moments however long it lasts and saying it makes sense of course I'm sad of course I'm not getting out of bed of course it's difficult for me to show up in the ways that I had I showed up yesterday I feel like there's a lifelong grieving because even though my mom did not, even though I still talk to my mom and I have a pretty pleasant relationship with her, I know that there are limits to it. I can't freely talk to her about my relationships. I can't freely share my exuberance about my queerness with her and have her celebrate it with me. And as my earliest caregiver, there is always, I feel like there's always going to be that 
that longing to have that with her. And I can't. And that's the reality. And I have to grieve that. And it's 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 probably a lifelong process that will still be here even after she's gone, if she goes first or whatever. But you know, I just feel like being comfortable and as you said, calling in community, naming it. It's a skill to name it and to say that this is how I'm showing up today because of XYZ. I did a script thing with my closest friends when I had a really difficult period of like grieving recently with my breakup where I was just like, okay, text me these words because <laughs> this is what I need. You are worthy. You're lovable. You're enough. And, and they would text it. I don't, I didn't have to reply back. I didn't have to double tap, nothing. They would just text it and learning to just curate that those people who can hold us mm-hmm. and whom we can hold too, because mm-hmm. that yeah. is so important. We have to be able to hold others in their grief as yeah. well, because yeah. otherwise what, what, what are we doing? Right. You know what I'm saying? What's the point? What's the point? So I'm so glad we got to talk about that. How is it with your parents? You're still in not in contact? Yeah, no. They are hardcore. I will say when they commit, they commit. <laughs> Generally in life. Yeah. So um, we have zero relationship last year i did some grieving around one of my closest aunts that passed and i hadn't seen her probably in 10 12 years i don't know um and i was able to see my father and i was able to see my mother because we were at a funeral Mm -hmm. but it was also on zoom (laughs) so that was weird because i hadn't seen him in so long and then like my dad's like old now you know what I mean Mm. so that was interesting I didn't it's really cool though to get to this part where I can see them I can love them we have no conversation because it was a funeral you know I only saw them because my dad spoke about my aunt but like it's cool to be able to give them love from this place now yeah like how healed am I? Yeah. Who even am I that I'm not like bawling yeah. while I'm looking at them because I'm so sad about what happens. Like yeah. I'm in such a clear place of understanding and also respect for their journey. And like, I don't, I don't know why they made the choices they made. I don't know the harms that came their way, they, the tools they did or didn't have. Like, and from that place, mm-hmm. If I can love all these other motherfuckers out in the world with all their flaws, (laughs) you know, it just made it really easier to accept them. And I'm also like, I have grieved them dying because that may be the next time that I engage with them. You know, like I had to go through that whole thing of them passing and actually kind of just like had them pass in my head. That was a part of my disconnecting from that parental cord because that shit is thick. Man, you know, kudos to you for that work and being able to show them love in that way. Kudos to me and those of us who are doing this work. And I just want to use this opportunity to say something to anyone who is listening, who is a Jehovah's Witness currently. 
or anyone who thinks that it is in any way acceptable to starve someone of love in order to teach them a lesson, in order for them to come back into the fold because they're starved of love. Like, yo, feel. I want you to feel that that is not okay. I don't care how you have rationalized it enough to get to a place where you're just like, if this person does not exercise their free will in exactly the way I deem acceptable, I will deprive them of love in order for them to realize that they chose wrong. (laughs) And we're talking specifically religious indoctrination and an extreme case of it with Jehovah's Witnesses and how they approach disfellowshipping. But same shit is happening with queer kids, with trans kids in quote unquote moderate Christian household. That shit is wild and it's not okay. I'm like, listen, I'm here for, as I said before, I can find grace. I can find love. I can find empathy. And for kids who don't have the money to move out, and you saying that they are that they cannot be loved or supported by you because they're not living the life that you want for them based on your beliefs and your exercising of your free will that's bullshit and y'all need to repent it's a word because tell me what kind of sense that makes i don't understand how they rationalize it honestly but that's what you said they're not feeling yeah there you go. That's exactly what, that's yeah. why I love that so, so, so much. They're not feeling, they're doing all these mental gymnastics to get to a place where they're literally denied. Cause I am damn sure that when your mom and dad saw you on that zoom, they felt something. You're their only fucking child, but they've, they've gotten to this place where they can do this mental gymnastics to not feel. To literally not feel that feeling of longing. Mm -hmm. That feeling of longing exists. If it exists for you, it exists for them. Yeah. When I got to that point, when I understood that, I said to my mom, how about maybe I would disfellowship you? (laughs) (laughs) You had a mouth. I do. (laughs) You're so funny. (laughs) Like... What if I, like, I make this choice? Well, I I actually disassociated myself. I didn't get this fellowship. Me neither, actually. I didn't show up for you to tell. Right. you gotta show up for that. Who gonna tell me? What? Period. You can't kick me out of something I didn't want to be in in the first place. (laughs) Yeah, no, I didn't show up. Talking about, are you in the area? The elders would like to, I'm like, booked and busy, girl. Booked and busy. Did you? I wrote a letter to my congregation, and I wrote a letter to Bethel headquarters and i was like i would like to disassociate myself from this congregation <laughs> that's even more than i did <laughs> i was just like i am booked and busy i just can't i will see what my calendar says <laughs> okay so you left you chose you you chose you know coming home to yourself how what is your relationship with spirituality right now i know you've kind of touched touched on it at different points but what does that look like for you well it has evolved as i have evolved okay so i forgot to tell you this part when i moved into my own place i made a deal with jehovah (laughs) 
This is this is me. Like I've been a brat my whole life. I'm even a brat with spirit. I was like, listen, Jehovah, if you want me, you gonna have to tell me straight up because you're God. This is literally my conversation in my apartment, in my place. And I was like, you're going to have to show me clearly that you want me to serve you. Because I've had a relationship with you through my family, through my parents, but we haven't had a relationship. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to need you to talk to me just like you talking to all of them clearly. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was like, I don't get it. I'm not getting it. I actually didn't get that part. I'm not getting it. So we had that conversation as soon as I moved into my place. And I say that to say that there's always been this knowingness of spirit, right? Even though I had an issue with the layout I was given, (laughs) I knew that there was something there. Mainly because of how spirit moved when I had my abortion. Hmm. That was the first time I feel like I consciously met spirit. Hmm. Um, Because the way that I was able to have an abortion around my family, like without anybody knowing, Mm -hmm. that was my first like seeing magic. I saw magic happen. (laughs) And there was something that stayed with me clearly because even in my adulthood, I still remember that moment. Mm -hmm. Just like knowing that there's something else here that I can't name, can't talk about, but there's something working Mm -hmm. that I can communicate to that sees me when I'm in trouble and resolves things. Like there's an essence. Mm. And that was just always subtly in my mind. But then also I told you that how just tapping into feeling also simultaneously as a curious practice was also a communication of some sort. Like that curiosity was telling me things as I followed it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so fast forward to when now I have space, I don't have my family on me, riding me spiritually through their spiritual lens. Mm-hmm. Now I have space to gather information, to read books, to watch films and to be around people. The year that my mom was like, cause they disassociated from me in stages. And the first year, that some literally like two weeks after my mom was like, I'm not gonna, we're not, we're not talking. A Ifa priestess just shows up. Like I knew nothing about African traditional spirituality, had no, like wasn't Googling it cause I didn't have any language for it. Yeah. All I knew was that there were some symbols that I was attracted to, some Ghanaian symbols I was attracted mm-hmm. to. But I, it never trailed off into like me searching for God through that. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, all of a sudden she just appears. She appears because after the situation with the con, like not buying the next condo, mm-hmm. moving into a place with an, um, a lover at the time, like not even my partner, but they were just a lover. They just had my back Mm -hmm. and were like, you can come stay with me and figure it out Mm -hmm. for a little bit. Like from going there and then one of my lover's friends was just on an errand run and was like, hey, do you want to come with me to run some errands? And through me just saying yes to that, I end up at the feet of an Ifa priestess. (laughs) Right. And then the priestess is like, babe, why are you so sad? And. Mind you, I wasn't physically crying or sad in that moment, but 
she picked up on something. Mm -hmm. Then I started sitting at her feet weekly. Not, again, not trying to get initiated or anything, Mm -hmm. not even having readings, but just curious. And so throughout the beginning of my exploration of self, spirit was just there. And because I had space to explore, I was able to deepen my practice. And as I started deepening my practice, I realized, oh, the subtleties, this is actually communication. Oh, everything's always communicating with me all the time. I just haven't been paying attention to it. Um, And then I started diving deeper into rituals and um, I actually didn't have to dive really far. Every time I would be curious about something, something would pop up. And so I would say that spirituality found me and has just been with me my entire life. It's just subtly opened itself to me as I trusted the space. When I think about my spiritual practice, I don't have any like consistent practice. It just is. Like I am spirit. I'm very clear that I am a spirit being. I'm very clear that I chose to be inside of this chaos in this moment. I'm clear that I had to wipe off a lot of residue that wasn't mine. It's kind of like coming through the birth canal. You got all these juices on you that's not yours. Then you get washed off, and then you become, and then you start crying. Mm -hmm. And that you keep getting birthed and birthed in this journey. Mm -hmm. And I can't even say what my spiritual practice is because it literally is spirit. It's forever evolving. There is not one practice that I'm committed to. I'm committed to spiritually living. Yeah which means that I'm free. Mm-hmm. Like I'm committed to freedom and liberation as a lifestyle, you know, and in that is spirit because that is what guides me to my freedom and my liberation yeah. is this constant relationship with this part of me that I have given birth to. Like I have identified and I have called into my life, yeah. you know, it's an active relationship. And that's why I feel like, a lot of times our relationship with spirit is dormant because we haven't activated the relationship. Once we call spirit in and call whatever spirit means to us in, right? Because when I say spirit and my spirituality, I'm thinking of a multidimensional practice. Mm -hmm. Spirit of my ancestors, spirit of people I'm not even connected to, spirit of ascended people who like not even people beings Mm -hmm. like there's just so many levels of dimensional play happening all around us all the time and so i call that spirit and i call my interaction with them my spiritual practice got it so it's it's forever infinitely being practiced and evolving thank you for sharing i love it (laughs) Because I was curious, because coming out of such strict religious, you know, indoctrination, I do wonder. Because there is, for me, there was just like this feeling of like being lost when I didn't have that guidance. Mm -hmm. When I didn't have the scripture to answer questions for me anymore. I look back out of my, like my Facebook post, like 2008, I was on one. I was, oof. I whatever question I had, I found a scripture that would help me answer that question. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. Um, Scriptures never answer; they confused me. No, I, I, I looking back now, I think it was very specific scriptures that just basically spoke generally. 
to love. Something like the meek will inherit the earth. It was always about just like, okay, how how do you treat your neighbor? How do you treat yourself? How do you treat people around you? So there, there was a theme, let's just say. I don't know anything about the scriptures that <laughs> were more punitive in nature. I was always just... Looking for the love. I was I was always looking and trying to find the love. Absolutely. And I think there's still some gems in there from a histor from a from a book. From a book I'm a big reader. When you stop thinking of the Bible as inspired of God and the word of God, for me I can just look at it, certain scriptures, I can just look at it and be like, Okay, that's pretty cool. Like if you have a problem with someone, go to them and settle it first. If it does not work out, bring the community into it and do not necessarily take your brother to court you know they're just those basic guidelines um still resonated with me but in general I felt really just like lost and unanchored and coupled with just I was scared of ever being in a position where a belief system had such a strong hold on me so even till today I'm big into Buddhist principles. I, I I listen to a podcast daily probably on something surrounding Buddhist principles or philosophies or ideologies. I have a robust meditation practice, but I make sure that I'm clear that it's not a religious practice. So I won't chant. I won't even look into it. I don't want to. <laughs> so I find those like, um, and then when it comes to African spirituality, I am Igbo, my mom and dad are both Igbo. I happen to get with a partner who is very into spiritual, Igbo spirituality. So I think, I don't think that's um, a coincidence. Tis what it is. I'm just chilling. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I say. I'm chilling, you know, and observing. I'm observing. I'm careful not to name things just because everyone around me is naming it and I probably take it to an extreme but I'm okay with that but I think it's my little like um, rebellion and just like cautiousness around being swept up into something again Um, because I find that I have a lot of people around me who are either into astrology or tarot or just like spirit and like African spirituality who are not necessarily African or and I'm just like okay y'all have a lot of words for a lot of things and I just don't know and I'm confused and I just I want to chill on it you know but if I outside of that fear in my quiet places I can certainly understand like what my intuition looks like and it's beautiful (laughs) the way I can foretell foresee sense I know there's something there right I know there's something there and I just um, I just let it be there I think it's important that you um give yourself space Mm -hmm. like you're doing the thing you're literally doing the thing I think we need jerkly we'll jump into something right like I think in any context, but in this context, in religious context, like I saw myself default looking for something else after I left. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, what's going to fill in the space? Yeah. And I found myself exploring 
a lot of traditions and religions because of that. And it just all circled back to the same thing. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so it's not it's not going to be in this context. Mm-hmm. But there is something to being around and, and hearing all these new concepts and language and not feeling pressured to it. You know, like, I think that your intuition is the... That is spirit to me. Yeah. That is spirit. My grandma. Yeah. The way I move. You know how people have like goal, like career goals? The only goal I have in life is to live like my grandma lived. So every decision I make in business, in career, in relationships, in community leads me to that. To live like she lived. I, I think that's a very directed guidance if you will. Like, I noticed that. Like, absolutely. And so recently when I brought out her picture, I was just like, oh, okay, that felt good. That felt good to do, to put, you know, a picture of her next to a picture of baby me. I'm like, okay, we're going to do just that. And it feels good. And I look at it and there's no, like, resistance to it. And I'm like, okay, this is how we're going to journey through this. Uh, And that has felt really good to me. Okay, we're going to begin to wrap things up by asking this question. If you could talk to the younger you or someone who may be where you were, what would you tell them? Mm, It would be centered around listening to the quietest voice. (laughs) Find the quietest voice inside of you and like amplify that voice. Because that's where the secret sauce is. Your secret sauce, right? Um, Yeah. And you have a lot of secret sauce. Yeah. (laughs) And for some reason, you have been given the permission to spill that sauce on everything and allow that sauce to create new things within yourself. New opportunities, new worlds, new portals, new pathways that you couldn't even imagine and you still can't imagine but if you feel you if you follow that feeling and if you allow that feeling to pour out of you you will see what i call magic Mm -hmm. because it's not explainable you Mm -hmm. can't explain this shit (laughs) there's no language for what happens when you listen to the quietest voice but it's worth it it's worth the chaos that it feels because mm-hmm. it does feel chaotic when there's outside like overt outside stimulation and then the challenge of like listening to the thing you know yeah and so that's your sweet spot and your key to all of this is finding that voice strengthening that voice and letting that voice guide you you literally have everything you need inside of you already every tool every idea every word that you need to hear everything has already been built inside of you and it wants space to open up and there's no rush in opening up you have all the time Mm-hmm. You can play with time. You can slow time down. You can speed it up. Yeah. You can do all the things that you need to do to exist without causing harm to anyone around you. And you will. And you'll do it with grace. And you'll do it do it with some scars. But you can just rub some vitamin E on it. <laughs> <laughs> Period. (laughs) Uh, I love that. Thank you. And to piggyback off that, I will say that the concept of 
Adamic sin, the concept of being inherently broken and sinful, therefore we must seek redemption. Question it. When you're when you're in that religious, like when you're in those spaces, and this doesn't just apply to Jehovah's Witnesses, they make you think that anything out of that space is broken. That people out, outside of that space are not living, are not happy, are not fulfilled, are not having their prayers answered. It is a lie. It is a big fat lie. If you need any clues as to how big of a lie is, Google how many atheists are living fabulous lives. I'm just saying, like, they too are saved from accidents. They too recover when they're sick. You know, <laughs> they too, they're fine. Life is, is a mixed bag of, like, good things, bad things, neutral things, in-between things. And it doesn't just apply to one specific group of people. And just, like, you don't even, if you're someone who like evidence, there is evidence to the fact that life is, life, life exists outside of your congregation and your, your elder and your pastor and whatever else. And you're not inherently broken, you know? You don't have to earn goodness. (laughs) You just, you're not. And if you're queer baby listening to this, you better find a pussy to dive into. (laughs) That shit will liberate you. Like if you like pussies, if you're queer and you like pussies, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Um, That shit will, ooh, child. It will heal you. It will liberate you. Deeply. It will moisturize you. All over. (laughs) (laughs) oh god we're so gay um and there's so much joy there's so much fulfillment Mm -hmm. to be found and don't be surprised that most of what you're looking for in church is just community yeah (laughs) you know that the feeling of the spirit taking over you if you're like our little pentecostal baddies that's just you being happy (laughs) being in community come to a sunday dinner you're gonna be filled with all sorts of holy ghosts i'm just i'm just saying they don't have an exclusive in on this thing (laughs) we all have access to it and honestly their communities are not filled with joy there's just camaraderie that part you have to hide parts of yourself yeah seek where you can show all parts of yourself including the parts that are a little rougher around the edges and still be accepted now that that is that's the magic so real joy versus fake joy that's it the real joy you know what that feels like the fake joy is like yeah yeah i'm fine yeah I'm great. Yeah. You know, like. You can't even tell them you're hungover the next day. Mate. Because that means you got drunk. <laughs> if you cannot tell your friend that you were, you're hungover and like. Are they really your yeah, friend? Are they really your friend? You know? <laughs> um. So, Dan, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, my gosh. This has been such a wonderful conversation with you. Yeah. Thank um, you for hosting. Thank you for the great questions. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Before we go, though, shameless plug. Where can we find you? Oh. Yeah, do it. In these streets. In these streets, internet, in oh real God. life, analog, all of it. Um, 
So in these streets, you can find me in Oakland currently. I am cooperatively running a venue in Fruitvale, an experimental hub for the queers. Um, So you can find me there. Come play with us. And on the interwebs, you can find me at 7000coils.com. And that's the number 7000. And coils, like C-O-I-L-S. And then if you do the Instagram thing, mm-hmm. I can be found at K-K-I-N-G-B-O-O, King Boo, <laughs> or 7,000 Coils. And if you listen to music and you like to be challenged or you like a cute spell in your daily mix, um, you can find me on SoundCloud or Bandcamp also at 7,000 Coils. And I will include all of that in the description. Go check out Dan. If you're in the Bay, catch one of their events. You will be changed. Okay. (laughs) And it's like true transformation. So, yeah. If you surrender. If you surrender. It's a choice. It's always a choice. Absolutely. Um, so yeah. Until Thank next you. time. Rich queer on scene. Period. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs>